Hi, Damien here. A quick note that this episode was recorded in April, so some weeks into the pandemic shutdowns, but before the protests against police brutality and racism started in the US and abroad. Okay, here's the show. Say you're the director Ron Howard filming The Da Vinci Code, and your film hinges on access to the Louvre because that's where you'd find the Mona Lisa. Her smile is in the lower spatial frequencies. The horizon is significantly lower on the left than it is on the right. Getting permission to film inside the iconic French museum can be tricky. Is it another anagram? Can you break it? Professor Harry. Harry. Unless you employ the right people to speak on your behalf. It took calling in one of the biggest names in PR, Freud's. It's founded and led by Matthew Freud, who's known as perhaps the most well-connected man in London. If you're wondering, yes, he's related to the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud, who is his great-grandfather, and also to Edward Bernays, the founder of modern PR, and Matthew's great-uncle. But back to the Louvre. For access, all Matthew had to do was call in a favor. He got the head of the communications firm Publicis on the phone, who then got in touch with the French interior minister, who then had a conversation with the Louvre's curator, and bam, permission granted. Moon, sermon, charms, demons, omens, codes, monks, ranks, rocks. Madonna of the rocks. Da Vinci. Filming took place in the Louvre, amongst the largest collection of Da Vinci pieces in the world. So whether it's access or it's something trickier, like a reputational crisis, Matthew Freud is the person to call. Brands live or die by his advice. His public relations firm helps defuse sex scandals, repair corporate reputations, rebrand companies, and promote political candidates. He's worked with Bono, Bill Gates, Tony Blair, and for the Olympics, Pepsi, Nike, and the World Health Organization. The head of the firm, Cambridge Analytica, was in Matthew's office when news broke about a secret recording that showed the CEO bragging about the company's unsavory online tactics. Today, with COVID-19, the whole world is in crisis. So we did what so many before us have done. We picked up the phone and called Matthew Freud. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We reached Matthew at home, quarantined like the rest of us, hiding in a back room away from his kids. Matthew, you wrote a letter to your company saying that you obviously weren't happy about the pandemic, but you were hugely energized by it. What is it that you guys are doing? You know, how are you responding to it? Who's, who are you helping? Um, we are, I guess, at our most valuable at times of crisis or transition. So right. I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it, but, but <laughs> I, I've rarely felt more engaged or more useful. I, the reason, I guess, that I felt energized, if that's the word, was that my disbelief at the direction of travel of the world over the last two, three years, through Brexit, through Trump, through these sort of kind of myopic political dialogues, 
that ignored what seemed to me to be terrible, terrible emergencies in, you know, the basic fabric of our society. You know, we work with the NHS and Public Health England, and they weren't not in crisis before Corona. Right. You know, the environmental catastrophe of the few months before Corona, you know, it felt like biblical plagues every week. You know, you were, you were watching Australia sort of burn down. There were locusts swarming across Africa. Right. There was alternate floods. All forgotten and, now. But kind of forgotten then. Right. It just became this sort of drumbeat of extreme, once a decade, extreme weather occurrences that were happening every week. In England, we had three named storms, three weekends in a row. Right. Like we can go months without a named storm. And so when the world sort of collapsed into the crisis of Corona, it felt like it was a very late reaction. So I guess what I've been feeling for, for a long time, which is that we were, you know, so substantially on the wrong path and not addressing the issues that needed to be addressed. And so, so my enthusiasm for Corona, if I'm allowed to refer to it, that is that, you know, I, I do think there is going to be a, a reset. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be. And it's very, very difficult. You know, there's that, there's that line about how difficult it is to turn a super tanker. Right. Famously, I mean, I've never driven a super tanker, but I'm, I'm prepared <laughs> to accept imagine. that. So, so I know enough about boats to know that when a boat is still, it has bow thrusters, where it's quite easy to turn, actually. And then you, you start again in a slightly different direction. And so I think, you know, for everyone, there's an opportunity coming out of this to not just go back. So 2019, as an idea, has been completely abstracted by 2020, literally right. the opposite. And 2021, it's not going to look like 2020. It's not going to look like 2019 either. There is some aligned or negotiated merging of the idea and the opposite idea. And I think that's quite exciting because it's so difficult to affect change. I mean, you know, that's from a householder, personal commitments, or, or, or the way a company operates. It's really difficult to transition because you're either having to do it as a sudden change, you know, the sort of big bang version of at midnight on such and such a date, we'll go from an old system to a new system, which is hard. Mm -hmm. Or you have to maintain parallel systems right. and transition one from the other, which is really hard. And you've got passive resistance and you've got inertia and you've got you know, people not wanting to adopt new ways of working or new habits. But when, when you've hit pause, you do get to map out a new structure or a new sense of of what you're there to do or how to do it without having to, to then try and manage that transitional process through. So I, I, I think every company, every institution, every organization, every family, you know, has definitely an opportunity, but also probably an obligation to look at the way that they used to behave, the way that they behaved throughout this opposite period, and then to you know, probably adopt some new practices, but more importantly, to not readopt the stuff before. So Matthew, I, I'm assuming that you guys are pretty good um, at managing crisis communications. And 
for those people that don't know what crisis communications is, could you give us a bit of an idea of what, you know, what would an agency like Freud's or what would you be doing or what are you doing actually to help people during a crisis and particularly crisis communications in a pandemic? You know, crisis are us. We've been we've been working on helping people either mitigate the worst of their catastrophe or sort of make the most of transition or sudden change. Do you remember Red Adair? There was this sort of, of fabulous guy. My yeah, dad, you know, my dad was in awe of Red Adair. You know, that was surprised one of us isn't Adair. called Red. Yeah, he was. He was the guy who knew how to make the best of a situation that was clearly bad. Right, with some dynamite. Counterintuitive, but yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's the equivalent of dynamiting a a more figurative bit of firefighting. I think what we're good at is separating the media noise, the commentary, the sort of punditry that tends to surround the crisis from actually what the crisis is. So, you know, in in this instance, I think we were, you know, fairly efficient at being able to help people go through a process of securing their own people most important so you know if, if the world is burning what do you say well you know what's there so you know all of us definitely as employers are responsible for the people under our duty of care securing the base the most important thing if it's a crisis that involves you know celebrities and shagging it could be very tempting to look at what you're doing from a media standpoint but it's probably better go and talk to your wife and kids right do you deal with those? Oh, for years and years and years. I mean, I mean, yeah. I have probably a decade where, you know, Friday at 5.30, the phone would ring, it would be the editor of the News of the World, and battle would commence uh, <laughs> to see whether, you know, whether or not they'd managed to sort of take down one of our clients. I mean, I always think the worst thing anyone can ever say to you is, oh, you should probably call Matthew Freud, because it means you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> like you're really, really, really in, in terrible trouble. But you're one of the good guys, aren't you? You're not, you're not yeah. Max Clifford. A name I haven't had in a while. No. Max Clifford, who I knew a tiny bit, he sort of styled himself as a PR guy, but he wasn't. He was a journalist. He made his money from newspapers by selling kiss and tell stories from girls who had kiss and tell stories to sell. Okay. Uh, clearly, when you take responsibility for someone's reputation or a company's profile or a, a brand's position, lots of it's about opportunity and enhancement. But you also have to have a defensive toolkit because, you know, shit happens. There's a line that I'm always drawn to, which is a Nietzsche quote, where he said, I'm not angry that you lied. I'm angry that I can't believe what you're going to say next. And in Christ Communications, it basically means that whatever you say after you get into trouble doesn't really count. So the best way of getting someone out of trouble is to help them not get into it. But definitely, if you've been articulate and explicit about your values and about what you believe in, then when shit happens, you have a reasonable chance of being able to point to a body of evidence that suggests that this is not, that you don't care. Right. We have a, a saying at Freud's, which is in the end, you pretty much get the reputation you deserve. Oddly, quite often not for what you deserve it for. In our experience, very often when people are in the grip of a, of a personal or a corporate crisis, they may think that it's completely unfair because they really didn't do the thing they're being accused of. Right. Usually, they got away with doing much worse. Oddly, very often when people are celebrated or given a, a reasonable amount of, of credit for something, quite often it, they may not have deserved all the credit, 
but they probably did a whole bunch of things that went unnoticed. When you see a client walking through your doors, do you know already? Can you tell what's um, the, how you're going to earn your money off this client? Is it going to be crisis comms? So, or is so, it so, be... so annoyingly, we very rarely charge for crisis. I actually believe it's a sort of privilege to be able to help someone who is staring into the abyss. But even if they, uh, even if they've really done something terrible, well, if they've done something terrible, I don't. You know, I have no interest in working with them if they're good people in a bad situation. Okay. You know, it's, it's a bit like being an oncologist. I've got a reasonable sense of being able to give someone a diagnosis that's appropriate to their symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's a benign melanoma and sometimes it's, it's stage four reputational cancer that has spread to all of their vital organs. <laughs> um, I think I've only given two terminal diagnoses. To who? To who? That was tragic. <laughs> I mean, you could probably guess, actually. Um uh, Harvey Weinstein, who called me a couple of days before the New York Times things ran. Wow. Um, okay. And Alexander Nix. Um, Alexander Nix. That's the CEO of Cambridge Analytica. Um, who was in my office having a discussion about something else when he got the Channel 4 letter about the Sting operation. Wow. Um, where they filmed him saying some highly dubious things. But those are the only two. Then you told Harvey, it's all over, you're done. And then what, he, he walks out? It was a phone call and it was a brief phone call. I'd worked with Harvey on films in the sort of 90s mostly right. and had chosen not to work with him for about the last 15 years or something because he was a bully. You know, he was yeah. just relentless and it wasn't just women, it was journalists and PRs and assistants and you know, he was an extremely good producer because he wouldn't take no for an answer. Right. And he was a very bad man because he wouldn't take no for an answer. Do you wish you'd studied law? Do I? Yeah. Um, no one's ever asked me that. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> I think you'd make uh, a very I, good lawyer. I mean, I can see a lot of similarities in the way you think. I think PR is they're uneducated barristers. If I hadn't have left school at 15, a barrister is absolutely what I would have loved to be. Oh, yeah. Freud's law. I can see it. <laughs> I don't think we've had a lawyer yet. There's this odd rule where once someone's done something, you you know, so I wasn't allowed to be a, a shrink or an artist or a broadcaster right. or a fashion designer or a playwright. Or like There were a whole bunch of... I was going to say, there's a few things you're not allowed to be because let's put it this way, you come from a pretty well-known family. <laughs> it's a well-told story, but but having thought that PR was available in you know the Freud family ledger, and I got a job at 18 in a in a record company press office and, you know, quite enjoyed it and thought I could probably do it. And and then someone sent me a press cutting about a man called Edward Bernays, who was effectively the founder of, of Public Relations, who Your I didn't uncle. know was my, was my great uncle twice, right. obviously, uh, or weirdly. He was my great uncle through my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother in that there was sort of intermarrying between the Freuds and the Bernays. But I, I thought by then I could probably wiggle out of whatever. He was pretty uh, instrumental, obviously, in PR, but also quite um, quite creative himself. Immoral? <laughs> I don't know. Creative with the truth, uh, I think, too. I, th- I think he was a, a charlatan. I mean, uh, I wasn't going to offend your family, but... <laughs> okay. Adam Curtis did, did a brilliant... I mean, one, one of the greatest documentaries I, I think I've ever seen called Century of the Self. It's a four-part 
BBC documentary, where he effectively puts most of the problems of the world as the fault of, of members of the Freud family. It's wow. harsh. But if you look at Bernays's body of work, I mean, he <laughs> was employed by the American Tobacco Growers Association and did some research, found out that women didn't smoke, told them they were missing 50% of their market and spuriously attached smoking onto the sort of suffragette movement. And he paid women to march with torches of freedom held aloft. So, you know, killed millions of people through that. He introduced pork into the breakfast menu with spurious scientific research about calorific intake being slanted towards being in the day. So the obesity crisis is arguably his fault. Um, (laughs) He perverted elections in Central America on behalf of United Fruit Company. And did you know this before you got into PR? No, 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 genuinely sort of laterally. I mean, fake news and negative political campaigning. You know, he definitely was the first practitioner of, of getting politicians to tell the electorate what they wanted to hear with right. the use of research rather than what the politician actually believed was right for the society or the country that they were seeking to be elected by. So, Oh, so that's why you're in this. You're trying to clean up his mess. I'm able to demonstrate that on, on smoking, the environment, politics and obesity, we have done useful work, okay. uh, if not completely cancel out, then certainly to mitigate. Your surname, obviously, you know, is already a big introduction to like a, a certain level of pressure, I guess, on you as well. But how do you separate your life then between the personal relationships you have with these people? Because you have to have a personal relationship with them to really help them in a the time of crisis. It is very personal by nature. And then the work part, how do you manage to separate those two things? In truth, I probably don't. Okay. What do your family think about that? I guess they're used to it. I I suppose because I try and work with people that I like. I've probably earned the luxury of not having to work with people that I don't. So there's definitely blurred lines. It's a really interesting question because the great privilege of my life and career has been to meet some really interesting people at a point where they were so challenged that I saw a vulnerability and a side of them that very, very, very few people would ever see. So, you know, when you meet someone on the worst day of their life, there's not a lot of social niceties. There's not a lot of bravado. There's not a lot of that, the sort of normal choreography of of a relationship when you meet someone and, and you try and put on your best front and so do they. You know, you really cut straight to it because you have to. Right. And so, you know, a lot of extraordinary friendships and, and relationships that I've had have begun with a sort of brutal honesty. And you only get that if you're prepared to reciprocate. It's very hard to not become emotionally involved in someone who is having such an extreme experience and being able to help them and protect them from the media scrutiny or from the reputational consequences of whatever's happened and allow them to focus on what's actually happened, whether it's a personal issue or a corporate issue or a pandemic. It's a worthwhile contribution. It's not the most important thing in the world, but it it helps because it's very easy to deal with a media inquisition. It's much easier than dealing with the crisis that is probably the cause of the media inquisition. I think, think, you know, people naturally are drawn towards the sort of smoke and mirrors around a crisis. You know, you've seen in a lot of the activity around 
COVID-19. You know, the Daily Mail may be driving the agenda more than the chief medical officer. Donald it's Trump. It's very, very easy to be distracted by a daily briefing where you've got to tell journalists something than arguably getting on with what you should be doing in terms of tackling the actual crisis. By the way, I think there will be a day of reckoning for most of us. How did we behave? A lot of people are talking about, you know, what are you going to do afterwards? How are you going to run your company? How is things going to change? What are you going to do differently? All that sort of stuff. What lessons can we take from other crises that you've been through that we might be able to apply to what we're going through now? You know, and this can be for individuals as much as it could be for companies. I think my fear is that the assumption after a crisis is that it'll happen again. So if you, if you sort of think about, you know, it's been, what, 20 years since 9-11. And, you know, we're still having to go through a set of inconveniences at airports that are trying to protect what happened at 9-11 from happening again. To my mind, the reason it happened in 9-11 is because those checks and balances sort of weren't in place. And so other terrorist attacks aren't going to happen where there are checks in places. They'll go to somewhere that isn't protected. And there are plenty of plenty of options for people to choose for. My fear is that we'll spend the next two or three years trying to stop corona happening in exactly the same way as it happened this time again, rather than actually looking at how unprepared we were, at how broken we were as a society. Right. Um, you know, I, I think the lessons of the last few months, if they teach us anything, it's that we are actually in this together. We are effectively a, a single organism that the world is connected, that communities have a duty of care to protect everyone, not just people in your demographic or people in your zip code or you know people in your profession. I think the world's been getting smaller in the last three or four years. I think you know both Brexit and Trump had a very inward-looking approach to society. If COVID teaches us you know, anything. It's that global cooperation and collaboration is the only way that we can protect ourselves against not just this, but my guess is that most of the crises that are likely to hit us over the next decade aren't going to be local. They're going to be global, right? you know, because they'll be environmental, because they'll be around bacterial resistance in viruses, because they'll be, you know, around health and climate issues that affect all of us not just people in below the poverty line, although they'll be affected worse. And how about you as a business? Because if this forces a global recession, marketing spend, PR budgets, you know, training, development, all those things are some of the first to ever get cut. What, um, in your experience, again, will this mean for the PR or the, the comms industry? Look, it's my fourth recession. So we're a pretty strong business and, and we have a a fairly robust model. But more than that, because it's not a public company, because it's not owned by a global holding group, because it doesn't have shareholders, the point of Freud's and the brewery group of companies is to do the work that we care about. And so I'm incredibly confident that there will be a lot of that work that needs to be doing, whether it's as well compensated or rewarded, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. You know, like I think the marketing industry like most industries, is managing the transition from analog to digital badly. I think there is an opportunity around this pause to rebuild these businesses that are more fit for the current working environment than you know they were in January. 
undoubtedly some businesses won't survive. Some industries won't survive. Like what? What do you think won't survive? I think retail is going to be very challenged. I think travel is going to be very challenged. I think areas of advertising are going to be less effective than they can justify. And who do you think is going to do really well? Uh, unfortunately, well, or fortunately, the same people have been doing very well for the last 10 years, which is, you know, companies that are entirely digitally. Um, look, any company that is less than 10 years old was built for the current environment. Any company that's more than 10 or 15 years old, you know, I think there's a lot of shops that won't reopen. The palliative care of companies that were basically managing decline I think the acceleration of that because of this pause, I think there's a lot of companies that had been traded and debt ridden by scavenger private equity companies who saw a bit of, of value to be sort of extracted before their demise. I, you know, It's going to take gumption to reboot a business after this. And there's a question mark over whether a company that isn't owned by either long-term shareholders or an executive base who are properly incentivized for the long-term benefit of the company, whether they can be bothered to do five or six hard years work to reinvent a business and get it back to where it was three months ago, particularly when they were managing decline in the first place. I mean, in one hand, you're quite lucky though, right? Because a lot of the clients that you represent are people like the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation. I'm assuming the bill's got enough tucked away that He's going to be okay for a, for a couple of years and isn't going to be too drastically hit by any of this. The charity and pro bono work that we do. Is that all pro bono? Yeah, almost all of our purpose-related work is pro bono. The World Health Organization is going to have to, you know, work quite hard to restore their reputation because it's been, I think, unfairly challenged in some areas and probably legitimately challenged in others. So how would you work with them, for example? How would you? How are you going to help them? I don't know. Fair enough. I don't know. It's not um, a small task. It's not that important. I mean, reputation is a it's a good firewall. If people ultimately trust you and know you, and you know, believe that you're well motivated as an individual or as a business or as an institution, you know, it's a bit like fame you know it sort of gets you a good table in a restaurant it doesn't make that much difference either the world health organization is effective as an organization in doing what they do or they're not in the end i genuinely believe that people get the reputations that they deserve so probably in the end i'm troubled by the elevation of the role that my industry plays it worries me when politicians ask me what I think, because I, I think they should be asking people who are really smart at governmental things. If you're led by a need or a desire to be admired or respected, when people come to us and, and say, we'd like a, you know, a better reputation, we go, well, great, be better. And we're really enthusiastic about trying to help them to be better, right. to examine their supply chains, to look at their environmental footprint, to look at whether they're supporting you know, the right causes, whether they, they actually live the values that they talk about. And I'm very happy to then work to get them an appropriate level of credit and awareness of who they are and what they do. 
And how do you measure their reputation then? What, what is the benchmark for good reputation? There's no empiric scale, is there? Allegedly, in America, someone did a study that suggested that 50% of the value of every public company was attributable to its reputation. That two companies that were doing exactly the same thing had exactly the same set of numbers. But if one was widely admired, it would be worth twice as much as one that was thought less well of. But that's not about the reputation. That's about whether or not the company is a good company or not. It's about whether they treat their people right. It's about whether they respect the community. I mean, I think there's a really interesting initiative at the moment about impact accounting, which is where companies will be forced to account for the actual contribution and P&L that they are responsible for. So tobacco companies won't be able to report a profit if they don't account for the unbelievable cost of the burden of public health care on the product. So I think we will get more sophisticated about the way that we look at a company's performance. And it won't just be on whether or not they make more money than they spend. It'll be about whether they, you know, have a positive contribution to to the world from a financial, environmental and societal standpoint. Matthew, thank you very, very much for making the time. Nice to talk to you. And that concludes our episode today. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing help from Elise Hugh and sound engineering by Mark Bush. With a special shout out to our friends here in Amsterdam, Center Sound, who helped make it all possible. Influence is available in all of the regular places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You know what helps our reputation? Subscriptions, ratings, and reviews. It all helps us make more of these episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. That, of course, helps my reputation. And Influence is a podcast from We Transfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next week.